You're listening to Behold Diana. This is episode eight. Al's request seemed like a good idea, so I returned to work. About 2.15 that same afternoon, there was a sharp knock at the door. Come in, I said, not bothering to look up from my typewriter. I assumed it was yet another client arriving late for a two o'clock appointment. This happened often enough to be commonplace. Are you Diana Boylo? A man's resonant voice queried. I looked up from the keyboard in surprise. Two uniformed police officers stood officiously over my desk. Al, who was about to enter his private office, swung abruptly around upon hearing the officer's authoritative tone. The younger of the two continued, You're under arrest. He then proceeded to read the warrant. I listened in silence. It charged me on two counts, criminal negligence causing death and dangerous driving. Am I allowed to say anything now? I faltered, looking across at Al. Before he had time to answer, I was receiving the usual caution that anything I said could be used in evidence against me. I remained silent. Diana, you'd better go with them right away, Al said at last. I'll try to arrange bail for you. Don't worry, I'm sure you'll only be there a few hours. I picked up my black handbag from the floor beside my desk, grabbed my cape, and followed them out of the door towards the street. I glanced back only once to smile weakly at Al. The janitor was standing in the hallway as we passed, and he peered at me. Because part of my job was dealing with law enforcement, he was not surprised to see me in the company of police. We walked past several curious bystanders who gawked and turned their heads to get a better view. From the air-conditioned comfort of the building to the swelter of the unmarked police car was but a few steps. It was parked with the unrelenting heat of the sun beating down its steel frame. Parking lights flashed, and the oversized aerial marked it as belonging to the police department. One of the cops opened the back door, and I sat daintily on the rear seat, sliding my long, slender legs inside. The door slammed shut. The engine purred to life. "'Where are you taking me?' I asked. He half turned around from the driver's seat. "'To Belmont Police Station. The woman's lockup.' My stomach bounded. The words, "'woman's lockup,' ironically sounded great. Maybe they'd never discover my secret. Maybe Al would be there when I arrived with the bail all arranged. Maybe.' The car radio crackled to life and interrupted my musings. 100. Accident on the Don Valley Parkway, about one block south of the Bloor Street cutoff. Do you read me? Over. By now, the officers were talking and laughing in a monotone, completely ignoring my presence and the urgency of the radio messages. I was grateful for this. The car pulled to a halt outside the police station, a large, grey-white building. For a moment, the cop who had driven the car hardened his expression. Come on, let's go inside. He gestured, holding the car door open. I alighted. Like all police stations, this one was gaunt and bare, and a hive of activity. There were several shirt-sleeved officers behind the long counter, busily telephoning and filling out innumerable forms. One young, blonde-haired constable had been assigned to the switchboard. Switchboard duty is one of the most hated assignments within the force. Explaining to would-be complainants that they should be calling the provincial police or the RCMP, sometimes the ensuing shambles at the peak crime time, around 10pm, is almost too much for one man to handle. The sergeant motioned and abruptly asked me to follow him. He led me into another bare room and handed me over to a prison matron. It was quiet in there, with only the whisper of the air conditioning and an occasional stray sound such as the clanging of a cell door or the ringing sounds of the regimented footsteps of a guard making his rounds. 
With a single swift movement, the sergeant handed her a sheaf of papers and disappeared. I heard the outer door close. May I have your handbag, please? She asked evenly. Mutely, I handed it to her. She proceeded to empty the contents onto a nearby table. It was quite an assorted jumble of cosmetics, bank books, cigarettes, matches, business cards, wallet, comb, brush, streetcar tickets, on and on, crowned with an avalanche of crumpled Kleenex. Rosemary's words from the previous week sprang to mind. Diana, when are you going to clean out your handbag? It's an awful mess. How you can find anything is beyond me. Of course, I'd never taken her advice. It was too late now. Although I supposed the matron was used to this sort of thing, I nevertheless stood by, red-faced and somewhat embarrassed. She meticulously sorted everything into about six neat heaps. As I stood patiently to one side, wondering how long it would take, she bent down and produced a clipboard. Upright again, she proceeded to make a note of each item. She appeared to have several classifications. Official or government documents, personal, cash, and I guess just plain trash. I noticed her writing down my savings account number with infinite care, but she failed to take note of the $1.65 balance. I continued to stand rooted to the spot, only my eyes ceaselessly moving, watching the procedure. Then she routinely itemized the 20 or so articles on the sheet of paper attached to the clipboard in neat, legible print. Ten minutes later, she was finished. It was not without reason. It may have been woman's intuition that she suddenly, without warning, reached inside my blouse. I stood dumbfounded. What could I say? You've got very small breasts for a girl, haven't you? She asked, withdrawing her hand and eyeing me quizzically. Despite everything, I detected a note of understanding and compassion in her voice. Are you really a woman? I'm sorry, Diana, she continued, but I must report this to the detectives. Wait here, I'll be right back. I sat on a bare wooden bench and waited and waited. Half an hour later, according to the wall clock, she returned, followed closely by two plainclothes detectives. One was a florid-faced, heavyset man of about forty. The other I judged to be in his late twenties, lean, fair-haired, and tall. With a certain directness, the senior of the two said, "'There seems to be some sort of problem. Are you really Diana?' "'No,' I stuttered. But that's the name I've used for years now. What I want to know is, are you male or female?' "'Male.' I replied in a firm voice. We'll have to rewrite the charge under your real name, which is Clifford Boylo, I interjected. Obediently, I gave them all the correct details, and he filled in the blanks on a fresh sheet with such information as marital status, next of kin, person or persons to be contacted in an emergency. Technically, I was arrested for a second time. We're taking you to police headquarters, announced the blonde detective. I'm sorry, Diana. The matron smiled as she and I were left alone. I feel awful, but I had to do it. Besides, they would have discovered sooner or later. It was just a matter of time. We've just called your lawyer, the florid-faced detective said when he returned. He's coming right over and should be here in about five minutes. Al, I reasoned, would be able to arrange bail. I thought it would be around $100, but I was wrong. Bail was set at $1,000, and Al was unable to raise such a large sum of money. The sight of the now-familiar unmarked police car made me wonder just how many more of these free rides I would take, or how many Toronto jails I would see from the inside before it was all over. There were to be several more of both. Reluctantly, I again climbed inside the police car, clutching my black cape. We sped towards police headquarters on King Street. What next? I pondered. Upon entering the precinct, I was confronted by a mass of male and female officers, and I knew by their stares and ogles that word of my true gender had preceded me. 
I was again forced to recite the facts, although by now I would have assumed they had them straight. This interrogation was a far cry from the one at Belmont. One youngish cop sauntered across the room and tugged at my long auburn hair, hoping it would come off in his hand. He looked disappointed when all he got for his trouble were a few stray red hairs caught within his fingers and a howl of protest from me. The teasing and harassment by the police continued. I stood by helpless. I noticed one slender, youngish-looking cop standing to one side, expressionless. I appealed to him with my eyes for help and understanding. He got my message, left the room momentarily, then returned with an inspector. The inspector was heavyset, had drooping jowls, and resembled a prize fighter. Now let's clear the room. Everyone out, he bellowed. They obeyed. I was once again handed over to the provincial police, who drove me to the Willowdale mail lockup where I spent a sleepless night. I did not see the light of day arrive, for there were no windows in my cell. My first indication that it was morning was the sound of prison guards yelling to each prisoner to get up. At around 10 a.m., I was taken to the adjoining courtroom and formally charged before Magister Fred W. Bartram, since deceased, with criminal negligence causing death and an additional charge of dangerous driving. Word by now had leaked to the press, and they had converged on the courthouse en masse. Reporters taking copious notes were scattered around the packed courtroom that held about 200 persons. The magistrate cautioned the press that photographers were not permitted within the precincts of the court. This is standard procedure in Canadian courts, and was not just for my benefit. I was in a state of panic during the hearing, and all I really recall is the magistrate setting bail at $1,000 in cash or property. Unable to raise this amount, I was handcuffed to another male prisoner and shoved roughly into a paddy wagon for delivery to the Don Jail. En route, the paddy wagon made numerous stops at what I assumed were other courts or lockups. At each stop, several more prisoners were ignominiously herded into the back. A couple of them couldn't understand what a woman was doing in their midst. One young punk yelled out on seeing me, So, we're going co-educational now. What fun! Shut up, rasped an older man. She's really a guy. You've got to be kidding! The rest of his remark was drowned in roars of laughter and hoots of derision. The wagon mercifully stopped in front of the fortress-like building, the Dawn Jail. The opening of the gates was controlled electronically from within. There was a further delay as we waited for the doors to open. The heat inside the paddy wagon was unbearable, and a stench of unwashed bodies filled the air. The door of the wagon was thrown open, and I saw for the first time a hitherto unknown world. It was like entering a foreign land, a walled island. We were made to sit in the tank, a long, narrow room flanked on either side by wooden benches. One prisoner offered me a cigarette, which I accepted. Gratefully. It was only some time later that I discovered that Tony had arrived at the jail before me to personally intercede with the governor of the prison on my behalf and ask for his understanding. One by one, our names were called. Clifford Boylow. I raised my left hand. The handcuff on my right hand was unlocked by a guard, and I was led away. I was taken to a disrobing room similar to the one at the women's lockup, only it was more sparse. Here, the same guard handed me over to two burly prison officers who treated me with cold reserve and a certain amount of hostility. My own dismal thoughts turned to Rosemary, my parents, and my unbearable predicament. I was ordered to undress. My already sorted and classified handbag was on the table, tagged with my name and number. Piece by piece, I took off my clothes. First, my string of expensive pearls, a gift from a lawyer friend. Then my black linen suit with matching cape, girdle, bra, nylons, and high-heeled black pumps. The guard bundled them together unceremoniously, tied them with a piece of string, and scrawled my number on a slip of paper and attached it to the package. He handed me a tag with an identical number. Don't lose it. That's your claim tag, and you'll need it to get your finery back, he sneered. Under his staring eye, stripped of all my personal possessions, I revealed my psychologically ill-defined sexual identity. 
take a shower, he said, pointing to a large open cubicle. The concrete floor was black with age and grime, and as I stood on it, I could feel a film of slime underfoot. It was the speediest shower I have ever taken. As I finished drying myself, the guard approached me with a glass spray jar filled with a whitish liquid that strongly resembled the kind I'd seen used for exterminating roaches. He aimed the jar directly at my penis and scrotum, and was right on target. It stung and smelled like disinfectant. What on earth are you doing? I protested, backing away. That's in case you brought anything in with you, he leered sarcastically. I was issued my prison clothes, a pair of trousers, lace-up brogues, and black socks. My slinky, sexy underwear was replaced by cotton jockey shorts, topped off with an open-necked shirt. With my painted fingernails and morning makeup still intact, I must have been a picture of incongruity. I was taken down a long hallway and told to go into a communal room. Here, I was immediately greeted by strains of the wedding march, whistled off-key by several of the inmates. You fucking bastard, yelled a tattooed prisoner lying on a cot at the side of the room. This utterance renewed my fears, not of imprisonment, but of the male prisoners. I became aware that I was to be the subject of their taunts and ridicule. In this room was a cross-section of criminals and lawbreakers, many of them hardened repeaters who had actually spent more time in prison than out. They ran the gamut from sneak thieves and drug addicts to the general dregs of society. Every prison inmate has a deep-seated fear of brutal assault by a fellow prisoner, and upon looking around the room more closely, my fear turned to terror. I assumed an attitude of helpless defiance, for I was also aware that brutality towards sex offenders and sex deviates is deeply ingrained in prison subculture. I have been told American prisons, unlike those here in Canada, give men written warnings of its problems and dangers. I learned almost immediately that prison language is obscene, brutal, and above all, repetitive. The catcalls, wolf whistles, and obscenities continued unabated. A dark-haired Italian asked me the time. It's about two o'clock. I said in the deepest voice I could muster. Thanks, he murmured. I discovered that time, or the passing of time, becomes all-important to prisoners. It reassures them that time in the outside world continues to exist. Each new prisoner who was brought into the cell area was asked this question by at least one inmate. Prison itself is a homosexual situation, depriving men of normal sexual activity. They are forced by authoritarian discipline to lead the artificial life of a chaste monk, but chaste they are not. Sexual deviation becomes the norm. I discovered that there are three types of deviates common to almost any penal institution. Active homosexuals, those normally heterosexual who become temporary homosexuals, and the dangerous, silent, under homosexual. I spent only four days in the Don Jail, but they were days of horror. The taunts continued, and the language, if possible, grew more obscene. I lay on my cot in a corner of the room, buried my face in the pillow, and cried and cried and cried. This only worsened the situation. A burly, bald-headed man of about forty ambled over to me and sneered in a loud voice, Say, what are you in for? Indecent exposure or paying boys to masturbate? A loud roar of laughter greeted his remarks. I was becoming paralyzed with fear. I found I couldn't move or speak even if I'd wanted to. It was obvious that no one cared about my worsening condition. Thanks to Al's intervention, coupled with the insight of the governor, I was moved to the hospital wing. Here, the food was good, and I was given books and newspapers. On the recommendation of the prison officials, I was permitted to smoke, a privilege not normally authorized in the hospital section. I was also allowed restricted use of writing materials and advised I would be able to send out censored letters, but I never wrote any. Three days passed before Al came to see me. I met him in a special section of the jail where bail is arranged. 
As I looked at him through the glass partition, I was aware that my eyes were red-rimmed and bloodshot. Al told me an unexpected offer to assist him in raising bail had been received from the man who owned a television repair shop next door to Al's office. Apparently, he had offered to put up his business as surety after reading about my predicament in the papers. I should be able to get you out of here later today. I'm also hoping to have the negligence charge dropped to the lesser one of dangerous driving because if the present ones stand, you could get a jail sentence. Well, for God's sake, do your best. I'm depending on you. Bail was set and I was released at 4 p.m. When I got home, I was promptly given notice to leave Marge's house because she was terribly shattered by the whole thing. Apparently, she had been hounded by the press and her phone had not stopped ringing since my arrest. I feel I can't blame her for taking the position she did. I'm sure I would have done likewise had I been in her shoes. I moved immediately to a bachelor apartment on Raglan Avenue using an alias so I would be able to maintain my privacy. As far as my work was concerned, this was not so easy. The newspapers and wire service had given me notoriety. There was a local high school situated about three blocks away from Al's office. Some astute student had seen me and had alerted the whole school to the fact that if they peeked through Al's office window, they would have a lunch hour peep show. On view, in person, would be the legal secretary who was really a guy. You know, the one who's been in all the papers. The one who was involved in a car accident. You know, the one where a girl was killed? I could almost hear them talking. Every day at around noon during their lunch hour, a mass of high school students would descend upon us. I fled to the washroom and remained there until I thought they had left. Luckily, their attention span was limited. They soon left in search of other diversions. Between the visits of the students and the persistence of the press trying to obtain an exclusive interview, Al found himself spending most of his valuable time playing cat and mouse games with my tormentors. Added to all this harassment was the unbearable phone calls from the city morgue, persistently asking for someone to claim Rosemary's body. The shock of having Rosemary snatched away so savagely was still with me. I just could not bring myself to face her once beautiful body lying on a slab. The inward struggle and pangs of guilt I suffered can never be described. I knew there was not a soul in the world who would say, she is mine, and this haunted me day and night. Rosemary was buried in Potter's Field, a place reserved for the city's indigent. The ensuing weeks proved a time of trial, and many of my close personal friends, both male and female, proved their frailty under stress and completely avoided me. On the plus side were the hundreds of letters I received from understanding, sympathetic strangers. Some came from as far away as Mexico, and several contained financial contributions to help pay legal costs. I think one letter I received from Toronto is of particular interest. It read, Dear Miss Boylesaw, Just this afternoon I did what I had hesitated doing for quite a while. I phoned your lawyer, Mr. Willis. I congratulated him on winning your acquittal, as I have been following your case from the sideline with quite some concern, although I don't know you. Actually, I wanted to lend you a sympathetic hand during what must have been a terrible ordeal for you, but I thought, probably correctly, that you and Mr. Willis would not be interested in meeting a stranger at the time. Putting myself in your place, something I can do very easily, I am sure that publicity would be very undesirable. I am not interested in publicity for myself, but I have written my name, address, and phone number as a gesture of my goodwill. Perhaps, like you, whereas I am not interested in publicity. At the same time, I am not ashamed nor afraid of what I am. I have some things in common with you, apart from being the same age. I am a man, but have at times lived as a woman because, well, why do you? Why do others? Reasons or guesses could fill a book. I am a respected citizen, and I know of others from all walks of life who are this way inclined too, and I have interesting and serious discussions with them on why. I have also discussed this with psychologists and doctors, though the majority of them know very little about the phenomenon of transvestism. 
The majority of them have had experience only with those who have had trouble with the law, and as a result, have pretty well only a one-sided view of this personality trait among a surprisingly large percentage of males, if the truth be known. I call transvestism a phenomenon rather than a deviation because of my personal understanding and experience about it. I confess that if I were not a transvestist myself, I would be inclined to take a narrow-minded view of these people and call them, at best, cranks. Here is a big job to educate the public. I live as a man, and it is only during some of my leisure that I indulge in fancy feminine thinking. I enjoy this, and in fact, it is more than just fun. And in fact, if I were not interested in normal sex, I would also choose to live as a woman permanently. I know people who are doing this. Some have taken the sex change operation, some have not, for various personal reasons. One very good reason, as Mr. Willis has said, is the very high cost of the operation. Also, one wonders, how successful can this operation be, and how much pain and confinement is involved? We know of the Denmark and Casablanca operations, and one may also have an operation in Mexico. Some of my close friends are also now in the female hormone treatment stage, under the guidance of Dr. Benjamin of New York, possibly the foremost authority on this matter in North America. His waiting room contains a constant flow of transsexuals, many of them living and working as women. If ever these patients have a brush with the law where their identity and sex are put under question, they have a letter from Dr. Benjamin which explains everything. Wouldn't that be a help? Finally, on the feminine side, I wish to compliment you on your taste in dress. I am naturally also interested in fashion. Also, I have been fairly successful in electrolysis treatments, which I have taken for a year now. Now, I personally am quite content with my lot. I have a busy and productive life and enjoy helping others. Also, I have now got to understanding myself, or myselves, and have had a peaceful and enjoyable existence. I offer a hand of friendship to you because it may be a mutually pleasant and rewarding experience. I feel I have done my personal duty in writing to you through Mr. Willis. Give me a ring any weeknight, say about 5 to 7 p.m., or even later, if you like. Yours truly, John Brown. This letter was to prove a reminder that there were others in my same position. Then I saw another letter lying on my desk Al had left for my attention. My God, Rosemary's citizenship papers. Finally, the wrecked car had to be disposed of. Al helped me find a scrap metal dealer who purchased it for the magnificent sum of $25. The sight of the mangled, crushed metal and the bloodstains in the passenger seat evoked nightmarish memories. Al and I reached a stage where we were constantly bickering because the pressure put on us was growing unbearable. Besides the productive working hours that were whittled away by our trying to dissuade would-be intruders, I was always unavailable or out of town, and there were also the many hours I was absent from the office for my numerous court appearances. Each each time I went to court, sometimes with Al, sometimes alone, the outcome of the hearings was yet another remand. By November 2nd, 1962, I had set some sort of Canadian court record. Ten remands in just over two months. Al and I mutually agreed it would be better for both of us if I found another job. The tension between us had grown worse. I used the same alias I had used when renting my apartment and was hired by a trade association on King Street. It was a small, two-person office, and I enjoyed the work. Despite the job, I managed to keep all my rendezvous with the court unknown to my boss or friends. I still wonder how my frequent visit to the dentist's office went unqueried, especially when, upon my return, my teeth looked no better than they ever did. After a morning appearance in court, followed by the inevitable remand, I would rush downstairs after work to buy the early editions of the evening newspapers. Often there was a photograph of me on the front page, or at least a story saying that yet another remand had been granted. Still, my boss didn't realize that I was the sensational Clifford. Many times he would lean over my shoulder when I was reading about myself and comment on the hearings. At last, almost six months after the fateful night of Rosemary's death, I was brought to trial before judge and jury. The case was to be tried at the old city hall with judge Judge Everett Weaver presiding. In the rows of counsel's seats 
sat Alan Willis and the prosecuting attorney and his staff. The police were represented by Constable William Lloyd. The inevitable bevy of newspaper reporters were present. I arrived at the court dressed in a black semi-fitted suit, three strands of pearls, black high-heeled shoes, a Persian lamb coat, and gray stockings. I wore the same clothes during the three days of the trial. The court clerk read out the official description of me as Clifford Boylo. The clerk then asked if I was male or female. Al objected to this question, but the judge held that it was admissible. After a huddle between Al, the Crown Counsel, and the judge, it was agreed that I would be arraigned under both names. It was also agreed that I would be allowed to dress in women's clothing throughout the trial. The first and only witness was a Hamilton school teacher who testified that my car passed him, began to shimmy, spun around, and crashed through the guardrail. Al, in his cross-examination, asked if he remembered any other cars being on the road at the time. No, I don't, came the deliberate and slow reply. Next, the police witnesses. One of the two arresting officers gave evidence as to how they had arrested me at my place of employment. I was beginning to get worried in case my defense would be hampered by prejudice that was currently being heightened by sensational headlines and newspaper stories. We again entered our plea of not guilty. At last, on the third day, after hours and hours of deliberation, cross-examination, and still more cross-examination, including my taking the stand in my own defense, the jury retired to deliberate. Their ten-minute absence seemed like hours. The verdict was not guilty. One newspaper reporter described my reaction thus. He gasped softly and buried his head in his manicured hands. I was free. Free to begin a new phase in my life. But was I truly free? Behold Diana is produced by Borderland Pride. This episode was a reading from Behold I Am a Woman a novel by Diana as told to Felicity Cochran. It was performed by Ken Keller of Fort Francis Little Theatre and recorded and edited by Caitlin Hartland. Our music is by The Night Driver and our sound was mixed by MJ Interactive.